0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Open your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 to 23. We're going to finish up the chapter here. It's on page 856 in the Pew Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of these home, not the black ones. You can take one of these home. They're going to be in the back. But if you want to take, uh, for right now, page 856 here, you get a nice large print. And so check this pew Bible out. I'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, page 856, if you want to follow along there. Hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. If you'll remember from last week, uh, the, wise, the wise men were looking for Jesus. They followed the star of Bethlehem, and then they left by another route. So we pick up the story in verse 13 after Jesus' birth and the wise men visit. After they were gone, an angel, of the, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. In keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through, the prophet, through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother And go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, we praise you for your word. Your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and clear word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. We pray that you would give us eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Sharpen our minds to make the connections that the prophets make from Jesus to to Hosea and Jeremiah and Moses and what they were teaching. Show us what Matthew was thinking here, that we might see the glories of Christ, that we might connect with you, draw near to you, worship you, and be changed. For the good of our souls, the good of our neighbors, and the good of the nations, and for the glory of King Jesus, we ask for your Spirit's help now because we desperately need him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christian musicians Shane and Shane summarize the desire of all Christians when they sing um, a song and they say, Come meet us, King Jesus. This is their prayer. Come meet us, King Jesus. Awaken what's inside of me. Tune my heart to all that you are in me. And even though you're here, God, come. May the vision of you be the death of me. And even though you've given everything, Jesus, come. That's a prayer for Christians. Show me who you are in your glory, how it applies to my life in me, in Christ, and awaken it because my soul is sleepy. My soul is drowsy. My heart is hard. My ears are deaf. My eyes are blind. There are blind spots here. God, change me and transform me. This is the desire and ambition of all Christians in this great struggle and battle. We want God to show us his glory because we want to connect with him. We want to enjoy Him. We want to commune with Him. And God's answer to us is, in one word, Jesus. That's His answer to us. And so here He gives us Matthew 2, 13 to 23, to give us Jesus. To give us aspects of the glory of Jesus and aspects of His glory. Because when you see the Son, you've seen the Father, so that we might see His glory Awaken what's inside of us and grow in our enjoyment of and um, glorifying of God in our lives. So this story here that I just read to you is a really simple and short story. We've covered Jesus' genealogy, son of David, son of Abraham, right? And then we talked about Joseph um, debating whether he should marry Mary or not, take, him, take her as his wife or not. He does, and he's in the kingly line, so Jesus stays within the kingly line. And then we learned last week that um, wise men come from the east to to look for Jesus because of the prophecies and because of what they're seeing in the stars. And so they come to see Jesus. Herod finds out. They come with their treasures. They give treasures to Jesus. And they leave by another route so that Herod um, is not... They don't lead Herod to Bethlehem where Jesus is now a little toddler. And so this week, we have three more scenes to the story. In this next scene... After the Magi leave, they don't go back to Herod. They go by another way because they were warned in a dream. And so Herod realizes that he's been duped. He's been tricked. They got the information about Bethlehem and they got to go there and they didn't come back with their information to him. They didn't keep their side of the deal. So Herod flies into a rage. He orders all of the children, all the baby boys, two years old and under, in and around Bethlehem to be slaughtered, to be massacred. And so they do, they, um, they, they, they do that, and, and the, reason they, or the reason they do that, am I jumping ahead? I'm actually in scene two, I'm sorry. Let me back up to scene one. <laughs> scene one is a warning to Joseph, before we get to that, a warning to Joseph to, um, to leave at night. So Joseph goes at night. Now, um, I don't know how safe you feel walking around here at night in southeast L.A. County. When I was living in L.A., I felt safer. Some people are like, living in L.A., like in the city, it's not safe. Well, I felt safer because there's all these people around. The lights are on everywhere. There's so many stores that are open. And if you walk down the street, there, the, I mean, you know, any of the main streets, there's, there, there's lights on. And there's people walking around like 24-7. But if you're traveling with no, no city lights, no street lights, just moonlight and starlight, by night with your wife and your one-and-a-half-year-old, how scary is that? By foot. You're going from Bethlehem, 75-mile 70 mile trip, to Egypt at night with your wife and your child. Would you be a little scared as a, as a, if you're the husband, right? Or if you're the wife even, right? Would you be scared as a husband? I'm here to protect my family and provide for my family. How am I going to protect them when it's just literally the three of us in the middle of nowhere with a camel or a horse that's carrying our stuff as we travel with a baby? Like, how can I protect our family like this? That's what Joseph had to do. At night. So he takes the trip to the border, 75-mile trip to the border, by foot at night with probably animal assistance to Egypt. And he stayed there until Herod dies. Scene two, I just already said I switched the scenes. But Herod flies into a rage, massacres all the baby boys, probably somewhere between 15 and 50 boys. We don't know. It could even be more. Um, but don't think like thousands of boys. Like the town is not a huge town. And so um, maybe somewhere in that range of boys, but we really don't have any – Sure idea. Um, so, so, so Herod kills the baby boys in Bethlehem because Jesus has escaped. And then in scene three, Joseph is in Egypt. While he's having a dream in Egypt, an angel comes to him and says, I'm not sure it's through a dream, but an angel warns him and says, Hey, the people who are trying to kill this baby's life, they're dead now. So go back. So they go back to, so they they were from Bethlehem. They went to Egypt, they leave Egypt, they go back to Bethlehem area, Judea, the southern part, but then Archelaus is still the one ruling there, that's Herod's son, his his kingdom was split into four parts, and his most vicious and violent son is still ruling in the south. So even though he's not looking for Jesus, he's still a very violent leader, probably not the best place to go, so Joseph says, we're not staying here in the south, we're going to move north, and we are going to Nazareth, okay, okay? So it start, So Joseph, so to recap the story, starts in Bethlehem. They go to Egypt. While they're in Egypt, a slaughter of the, the baby boys here. They come back to the south, not safe here with Archelaus. Let's go north, and they go to Nazareth. And that's the story we have here in these three scenes. Now, there are a lot of lessons we could learn from this story. I'm just going to say a bunch of them that we're not going to meditate on, and then we'll get to my, the body of my sermon. Okay? Here's some lessons we could learn here that we're not going to spend time thinking about here. I'll just mention them. Um, God speaks to his people and they discern his voice and his message. They're speaking through a dream, speaking through prophets. So, so God speaks to his people. That's one lesson we could learn. Another lesson we could learn is that God takes care of his people and accomplishes his purpose. He takes care of Joseph and Mary and Jesus. He makes sure that they weren't killed even when a bunch of other people were killed. Another lesson we could learn is that God allows tragedy in this world and he shows us that there is a place for weeping and grief. That there is brokenness in this world, and there are tears to be shed. God teaches us to be obedient because Joseph is an obedient man. When God tells him to go to Egypt, he goes to Egypt. When God says, go back to the land, he goes back to the land. And as a disciple of Jesus, we want to obey everything he has commanded us as well. We could, we could apply this lesson to, um, to, to social issues even, to abortion. I mean, here's the killing of babies, right? You have babies that are not being valued as image bearers, but they are being killed. And today in our day, there are thousands, tens of thousands of babies being killed every year here in the United States in abortion. Babies in the womb who are not being valued. And here you have a slaughter of babies. And so you can apply it socially that way. You can also apply it socially to the idea of systemic injustice or structural injustice. I mean, Herod is a king. What does he use his power to do? Does Herod kill the babies? Personally? No, what does he do? He uses the governmental structure and his authority and his power, he abuses his power to oppress people. He uses a structure, and and he uses it in an evil way to oppress and harm people. There's applications to that in our world today as well. But we're not going to meditate on any of those. Those are just some of the lessons you can learn from this story. So, in this story... Matthew, though, he's pointing to prophecies, right? Three times he says, this was fulfilled by what the prophet said, right? In verse 15, you have, this is fulfilled, the prophet's fulfilled in, one prophecy is fulfilled in verse 15. Another prophecy, he says, is fulfilled, and he mentions that prophecy in verse 18. And then in verse 23, he says, "Um, it was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So three times, prophecy was fulfilled, prophecy was fulfilled, prophecy was fulfilled. So I think if we're going to get Matthew's main goal His main lesson for us to learn, we need to dwell on these prophecies because he's showing us something about who Jesus is through these prophecies. So here's the main goal. My main goal for you this morning from this sermon the main idea is connect with our Lord as you reflect on his work. Connect with our Lord as you reflect on his work. It's pretty general. But the work we're going to talk about is what makes it more specific. Connect with our Lord. So awaken what's inside of me. God, I want to commune with you. I don't want to just learn about the Bible. I want to learn the Bible. But I want to worship you right now. I want to enjoy you. I want to repent from my sins. I want to be convicted and encouraged and filled with hope and joy. So connect with the Lord by reflecting on his work. Now, to reflect on his work, we're going to reflect on three things. Redemption, hope, and forgiveness. Redemption, hope, and forgiveness. With each of these three prophecies, redemption, hope, and forgiveness. So point number one, the way I'm stating point number one, if you're taking notes, is Christ was redeemed for you. Point number one, Christ was redeemed for you. Look at verses 13 through 15. So after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, Joseph. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death. So where is he right now until Herod's death? Where's Jesus? Where? In Egypt. So Jesus is in Egypt. And then Herod dies. Then where does does God bring Jesus? Back to what? Back to the promised land, right? And so he's in Egypt and then out of Egypt he calls his son. So that's why verse 15 says, this was to, or he stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets might, prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Because my son was in Egypt, after I sent them there to hide from Herod, now he's coming out of Egypt, there fulfills the prophecy. Because God prophesied, out of Egypt, I will call my son, right? On the surface, that seems, that, that's the fulfillment, right? God says, I'm gonna call my son out of Egypt, and the son was called out of Egypt. Prophecy fulfilled, right? You guys follow? That seems simple enough. It's not simple. It's not simple. There's a problem here. The problem here is that this is quoting Hosea 11.1. So if you want to, I'd encourage you to do this. Keep your finger in Matthew 1 and go to Hosea 11.1 to the left. If not, you can just listen, but I'd encourage you to turn Hosea 11.1 if you can find it. It's to the left of Matthew. It's right after Daniel. Okay, right after Daniel, you have Hosea. Hosea 11.1, 1, you have this prophecy that Matthew says is fulfilled. So here's God reflecting on Israel's past history in chapter 10. And in chapter 11, Hosea says this, quoting God, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my sons. I called my son, I'm sorry. Out of Egypt I called my son he's talking about the past does that sound like a prophecy god is reflecting on the history of israel and he says yeah israel i love them you know in their history i brought them up as a child and when they were a child i loved them and out of egypt i called them he's talking about history do you fulfill history that's weird now when 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 like we learned last week when micah 5 2 says he the a scepter will be you know in bethlehem of judea a scepter will rise that's telling something in the future right In the future, someone's going to be born in Bethlehem. This is not like that. It's not saying, in the future, I'm going to call my son out of Egypt. It's talking about a past historical event and saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. And it's telling the story of the past. And Matthew says, huh, that past story is fulfilled. And you're like, what? How do you fulfill? I mean, that's not even a prophecy. That's not a promise going forward. It's a statement of history. How is that fulfilled when Jesus is going to Egypt and he comes out when Joseph is protecting him because it's talking about the Exodus. Ah, it's talking about the Exodus. And what is the Exodus? It's the Exodus what? Redemption. That's why we're talking about redemption here. It's the Exodus redemption that God redeemed Israel, his son, out of Egypt. And so this is somehow supposed to be connected to Jesus. Now, how is this connected to Jesus, though? Now, I told told you to turn to Hosea for a reason. Because Hosea 11.1 1 is a historical statement. And then it goes over some of their, um, their, um, their consequences in, in the following verses. or It, it just kind of goes over the history. And then God is about to exile Israel or Ephraim, which is God's son. And so look at verse 8. God is, God is judging Israel, and he's sending them to exile outside of the land. Not back to Egypt, but exiled out of the land to the Assyrian Empire, by the Assyrian Empire. And then you get to verse 8. And this, well, You know when you discipline your kid and you're like, you're for parents, sorry, not everyone's here as a parent, but for those who are parents, when you discipline your child, for those who are, and you feel like torn, or even when you have a dear loved one, and you have to kind of give them the consequences of their, of their actions, and at the same time, it hurts you at the same time, because you love them, even with a dear friend, right? When you have to say a hard thing to them. This is what God's feeling for his own son. So he's about to, he, he's going to exile them in discipline and in judgment. But then he says this in verse 8. You can feel his, his loving heart here. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? I have, I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim. I'm not going to treat them like the other nations. Why? For I am God and not man, the holy one among you. I will not come in rage, even though I am exiling you and kicking you out of the land for now. They will follow Yahweh, the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, what's going to happen? When he roars, his children will what? Will come trembling from the west. I kick them out of the land. He's going to roar. And what's going to happen to the children? They're coming back to the land. Okay, and then verse 11, they will be roused like birds, like birds from Egypt, just like, they're coming at, just like they came from Egypt, they'll be roused like birds from Egypt, like doves from where? From the land of Assyria. That's where the exile is right now. Then I will settle them in their homes. This is the Lord's declaration. Okay, so listen. You've got to understand Hosea here. What is Hosea doing? He says about the past history, out of Egypt I called my son. In Egypt, back with Moses and the Ten Commandments, all that stuff, right? The Exodus redemption in history. Then Hosea is saying... Or God is saying through Hosea, just like I did it back then, when I exile them to Assyria when I exile them to Assyria, I'm gonna roar like a lion and I'm gonna bring them out of Egypt, out of Assyria, back to the land. So it is a prophecy. Eleven one is not the prophecy, but if you take the whole chapter, the prophecy is coming at the back end, right? So when Matthew's quoting Hosea 11:1, he's not quoting just the history. He's saying the history there is connected to the future promise that after the exile, the exile will end with a second exodus, a second redemption where they come back to the land. Do you guys see that there? So when so now when Joseph takes his son to Egypt and he takes him out of Egypt and brings him back to land, Hosea, or Matthew's saying, "Ah, that's what Hosea was saying." just like he redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt and like he promised he was going to bring them back from Assyria in exile, when Jesus comes out of Egypt, this is the second exodus. This is the new redemption. We are finally going to be redeemed from being kicked out and the exile out of the land in Jesus. And that's why we're saying here from Hosea 11.1, my point here, point number one, is Christ was redeemed for you. Not that he's the redeemer at this point. Israel was the redeemed. They were brought out. Here, Jesus is not the redeemer. He is the one who's being redeemed. He is the people of God. He's the representative for the people of God as God's son. Now, the reason why Matthew can do this and Hosea can say this, out of Egypt I called my son, is because God said in Exodus 4, and 23, he said to Moses, Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, release my what? My firstborn son. If you don't release my firstborn son, Israel, From slavery, you know what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to kill your what? Your firstborn son. That's the Passover, right? You don't release my firstborn son, Israel, I'll kill your firstborn son. You better release my son. So that idea of Israel being the son of God, not sons, the son of God, God said that to Moses. Hosea is just picking up on what Moses said or what God said to Moses at the burning bush. Okay, so Israel is the son of God. The people of God is the son of God in the sense. And they're supposed to live for others, but they were exiled. And so, so when Hosea uses it here, Matthew sees it and he says, ah, this is being fulfilled. Okay, and so we see that there. So God's son comes out of exile so that they can become the blessing to the nations that Israel was supposed to be. They're coming out of, they're, they came out of slavery to be a blessing, they failed. Now they're in exile, they're going to come out of exile to be the blessing to the nations that they're supposed to be. And does Jesus become, as he's redeemed out of Egypt, does he become the blessing of the nations that Israel was supposed to be? Are we not blessed through Jesus Christ because he was redeemed out of Egypt? Yeah, we are. Okay, so Hosea here is showing us this in part. Hosea didn't fully understand this. If Hosea read Matthew, he would be like, ah, oh, man, that's deeper than I thought. But he wouldn't disagree with and say, that's not what I was talking about. He's like, yeah, I could see the connections, and I, I could see how I was leaning in that direction. But God was inspiring me, and there's something there that I could see the, the traces of, but I didn't see exactly how it's going to be fulfilled. But now that you wrote that, Matthew, I agree with you. I get it. That's, that, that does seem to be what God was, was saying, and that's, that is in line with what I meant. Okay? So Jesus embodies the true Israel for us. He is the new and true Israel coming out of Egypt, and he's enacting the second exodus predicted by the prophets long ago. If you want to look at that more, you can look at Jeremiah sixteen four through 5 to see the second exodus in Jeremiah. And Matthew has Jeremiah in his mind because he's going to quote Jeremiah 31 in our next point. Okay, here's some application for you before we move on to this, the next point. Recon, um, Christian, you need to recognize who the true people of God are. Understand that if you are going to be part of God's people, it does not begin with what you do. Going to church does not make you part of God's people. Okay? Reading your Bible doesn't make you part of God's people. Preaching a sermon behind the pulpit doesn't make you part of God's people. Doing good works does not make you part of God's people. Even repenting from sin does not make you God's people. What makes you God's people? Being connected to the person who is God's people. Who is the true Israel here? Jesus is. And if you connect yourself to Jesus, as as Paul says over and over, if you are in Christ, then you are now part of the people of God. So, Christian and non Christian, if you want to know who the true people of God are in this world, it is, it are, it's the people who are personally, experientially, actually connected to Jesus Christ by faith in Christ. Now, repentance is part of faith, so repentance is there, but repentance by, yourself, by itself doesn't lead you to Christ. You've got to actually connect by faith in Jesus Christ. That determines who the true people of God are. So, when you meet another person out in the world who's not part of this church and they're connected to Jesus, guess what they are to you? They're family. They're part of the people of God, just like you, because they're connected to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you're saying, well, what does this mean for me? This whole prophecy thing about Jesus becoming the true people of God, and he's the one redeemed out of Egypt. What does this mean for me? Here's what it means for you if you're not a Christian. You, non-Christian Fred, first of all, thank you for coming here to this church gathering this morning. We realize you don't have to be here, but you chose to be here. So we're glad you're here. We welcome you, and if you have any questions about Jesus or anything else, we'd love to, to work that out with you or just find ways to try to help you find answers from the Bible. At least get that, that Bible's perspective. But if you're not a Christian, here's what I want to say to you. If Jesus is the person who is the people of God, and only by connecting to Jesus can you be part of God's people, then what do you need to do if you're not a Christian? You need to figure out who Jesus is. That needs to become the priority in your life. Who is Jesus? Because if you're going to trust him, I'm not asking you to trust him in blind faith just because some stranger behind a wooden box says from an old book that you need to trust Jesus. You need to figure it out. You need to think. You need to ask your questions and figure out who is this Jesus? Who is he? Because if he is the people of God and if he is the Savior, you need to connect to him or else you will be separated from God. Not only, you'll, not, you'll not only continue to be separated from God. You'll be separated from God forever after you die. Now, for the church, what does this mean for the church? We need to realize who we are. We are, our church family, Bethany Baptist Church, we are the people of God only because we are connected to Jesus. That's that's the only reason we are the people of God. So when we take this bread and this drink, what are we symbolizing here? That we are the people of God. We're connected to his broken body for us. We're connected to his blood spilled for us. That's why we say, before we take communion, this is who communion is for. Because this is the people who are connected to the one who is the people of God, who who is redeemed out of Egypt, Jesus Christ. Okay, so connect with our Lord as you reflect on the work of our Lord Jesus, the fact that he was redeemed out of Egypt. We always think of him as the redeemer, and he is that. But here, he's the redeemed. He's the redeemed people of God. He redeems you out of bondage and exile to sin. So let's worship God because God redeemed you in Christ when he called Jesus out of Egypt. Okay, secondly, number two, verses 16 and 18. Christ sealed hope for us. Not only did Christ redeem, not only was Christ redeemed for us, Christ sealed hope for us. Now in this story, look at verse 16. Herod flies into a rage when um, when he realizes that he's been outwitted by the wise men, he gives orders in verse 15, 16 to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who are two years old and under, in keeping with the time he learned from the wise men. Who would that be in our church? Solomon. Is Ashton two years old? How old is Ashton? He's three. So Solomon's one of our baby boys. What um, other baby boys we have in our church right now? Ezra. Anyone else? Yeah. So, I mean, just imagine even here if, if we were in Bethlehem And Ezra and Solomon were were killed. And we couldn't do anything about it. Like, legally, we we have, like, you know, I mean, praise God for a lot of our checks and balances here and the Constitution and our rights. But, like, back in those days when you didn't have, you know, pre-Magna Carta, when you don't have a document, even governing kings, kings do whatever they want. And so, imagine that. Part of our church family. We got boys in our church who are slaughtered legally just because a king is flying into a rage. That's what happened. Massacred these boys. Then, it says in verse uh, 16, or verse 17, then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. So when the massacre of the boys happened, what was fulfilled? A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. So what happens here? Before we talk about the, the fulfillment, Herod flies into this rage. This is not unheard of for Herod. Let me, let me give you another picture of Herod. I know we've talked about Herod for the last few weeks. Let me, let me give you another picture of Herod here from Michael Green. He writes this. Herod slaughtered the last remnants of the Hasmo. This is how violent he was. He slaughtered the, Has- the remnants of the Hasmonean dynasty of Jewish high priestly kings who ruled before him. He executed more than half the Sanhedrin. He killed 300 court officers out of hand. He executed his own Hasmonean wife, Miriam, his favorite wife, by the way her mother, Alexandra, and his sons, Aristobulus, Alexander, and Antipater. Finally, as he lay dying, you thought he was done? He's dying now, but he's not done yet. As he lay dying, he arranged for all the notable men of Jerusalem to be assembled in the Hippodrome and killed as soon as his death was announced. A man of ruthless cruelty and with a fanatical neurosis about any competition it is quite in character that he should order the execution of the male children in Bethlehem. This is not, this is not surprising activity for Herod. This is how he was, in the last, especially in the last years of his life. So this slaughter should be seen in light of the whole Bible story. Herod slaughtering children. Herod slaughtering the people of God. What does that remind you of? If you go all the way back to the garden, what did God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? After they ate the fruit, he said to the serpent... You're cursed, you're gonna crawl on the belly the rest of your life, the rest of the days of your life. And then he says, I will put enmity between your offspring and this offspring of the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's talking about Jesus and other things. But notice this there's hostility between two, between who? The offspring of the woman and the offspring of who? The serpent. And everyone who's in this room, and everyone outside of this room is in one of those two offsprings. There's hostility. Between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And there's always battling. So Herod does it here. So he's trying to kill who? Who's the offspring of the woman? Jesus, right? He's trying to kill Jesus. And that's what he does. The offspring of the serpent tries to kill the offspring of the woman. That always happens. You know, remember last week we talked about Herod and Saul, right? And how there's a, there's a connection or there's, um, there's similarities between King Herod and King Saul, who was also eventually the illegitimate king of Israel. You know, uh, in our family devotions this week, we read how Saul, when he went to the priest where where David got bread and got the sword, he went to the priest's um, tabernacle. He asked about where David was, and the priest didn't know anything because David didn't give him any information. So then Saul was so mad that he said he said to one of his soldiers he said to his soldiers, "Kill this priest and kill all these priests." Now he's clearly irrational at this point, and the young soldiers were like. Uh, I can't kill a priest. I mean, like, this is anointed of God. Like, what? And so no one would listen to Saul. So then Saul told Doeg, the Edomite, I think it was the Edomite, go kill the priests. So the Edomite kills. Remember, King Herod's an Edomite, too. The Edomite kills all the priests. And then it says, in in the town, he kills all the men, women, and children and livestock. King Saul even has a, a massacre of the priests and everyone in the town. I think that's like 1 Samuel 22 or 23. You could, you could look that up later. It's somewhere in the early 20s. But you have the seed of the serpent. And what is he doing? There's hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. You see that with Adam and Eve. Or you see it with Eve and the serpent. You see that with King Saul. You see that with Cain and Abel. You see that with Esau and Jacob. You see that with Pharaoh and Israel. Herod with Jesus. Jewish leaders and the Romans against Jesus. Non-Christians with Christians. Revelation puts it this way. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. The dragon, Satan, and his offspring at war with the offspring of the woman. You see that here. Okay, so in the light of this picture, this thing that Herod does is not that surprising. It's, it's kind of in line with the history of the Bible and the history of our world all the way up until this day. But then Matthew wants us to get the idea from it. Okay, so children were slaughtered. Boys were slaughtered by King Herod. What's Matthew's lesson for us? It's verse 15, or verse 18 here. Let's go back to verse 18. It says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they are no more. So that's fulfilled. What do you mean that's fulfilled? Who's Rachel? Anyone here know who Rachel is? You could say it louder. I didn't hear If anyone's confident, who is Rachel. Jacob's wife, okay? Jacob's wife, you know, Rachel and Leah, right? Now, Rachel had two children. What were their names? Joseph and Benjamin. Good. So let's go to, so this is a quote here from Jeremiah 31, 15. So keep your finger or your paper in Matthew. Let's go to Jeremiah. So it's after Isaiah. It's to the left of Hosea and Daniel and Ezekiel and to the right of Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's look at this quote because I want to show you the context here as well. Whenever you get these Old Testament quotes, you got to go back and read the read the chapter and read the chapter before and the chapter after. Get the context. Okay, so uh, Jeremiah thirty one, fifteen. Here's the quote. It's in verse fifteen. This is what the Lord says: A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament with bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. Refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now Matthew is thinking of the baby slaughtered, right? But Jeremiah is talking about Rachel's children. Now who are Rachel's children? Go to verse 18. I have surely heard who is moaning? Ephraim. You disciplined me, and I have been disciplined like an untrained calf. Take me back. Okay, so Ephraim is is moaning here. Ephraim is the, the children of Rachel. Now, who are Rachel's two sons? Benjamin and who? Joseph. Joseph. Who's Ephraim? Sorry, you guys are doing... If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, just bear with me because some people are, are familiar with the story. I don't want to bring it back to their mind. Who's Ephraim? The son of Joseph. Remember, Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who become part of the 12 tribes. And Joseph takes, or Jacob takes his two sons as the tribes. So Ephraim is part of the children of Rachel. And Ephraim is the main tribe of the northern or southern kingdom. The northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom is is, uh, Israel. But if you wanted to, instead of saying Israel, you could just say Ephraim. Even though it's not all Ephraim, Ephraim is representative of the northern kingdom. Okay, so here, Rachel is weeping because the northern kingdom, Ephraim, is going to be exiled. Just like we learned in Hosea. They're going to be exiled and kicked out of the line. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. Jeremiah is actually – they're actually already exiled by the time of Jeremiah. And the south is about to be exiled. And notice what he says in um, Jeremiah 31 verse 20. Isn't Ephraim a what? This is now quoting God because God is saying – yeah, this is quoting God. And uh, 3.20 says, isn't Ephraim a precious son to who? to me a delightful child whenever I speak against him by the way um, in, in Jeremiah 31 verse 9 it also says I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn so you have that same thing that Hosea so Matthew sees a connection between Exodus um, Hosea and then Jeremiah about this son idea and exile but, um, so God is saying Ephraim is my firstborn but look at verse 20 I want you to see God's heart because Rachel is weeping but Rachel has been dead for you know, hundreds of years By this point, by Jeremiah's point, by Jesus' time, Rachel's been dead for over 1,500 years. Maybe 1,800 years she's been dead. So what does it mean, Rachel's weeping? It means verse 20, I think, in some ways. Who's who's the one who's really sad and weeping in verse 20? Isn't Ephraim a precious son to me, God says, a delightful child? Whenever I speak against him, I'm going to judge him. I certainly do what? I still what? I still think about him. Therefore, my inner being what? yearns for him and I will truly have what compassion on him this is the Lord's declaration so God is even as he's disciplining Ephraim he's crying inside like a parent right like Rachel he's disciplining them but he's crying over it because God does not enjoy the pain that we go through in our lives he doesn't enjoy the judgment that his son has to endure here as he kicks them out of line for breaking the law covenant God is not God is sovereign over your suffering God is in control. God has predestined and ordained these things to be. But God is not emotionless. God is not some distant tyrant who plays with you like your pawns on a chessboard. God weeps for your pain. He cries over your brokenness. He cares like a parent for a child. He yearns for Ephraim, his firstborn son, while they're suffering under his judgment. So when Rachel is weeping for her children, God weeps for the pain and brokenness of the exile because of their sin. But, so so part of what we're going to learn from this Matthew quote is that God, Rachel is weeping for her children, God does not take pleasure, even though God's in control. I mean, God could have warned all of them, all of them in a dream to take their children out, right? I mean, God warned Joseph in the dream, take your son and go to Egypt, God could have Gave a dream to every father there and said, take your son out because Herod's about to go crazy. Right? He could have done that. He doesn't do that. So even though God's in control, he still weeps though. He still cares. He ordains suffering. You have suffering in your life, but God cares. He feels. He loves. He cries. He yearns. And that's what we're learning partly here in Jeremiah 31. But that's not the main thing I think that's true. That's true. So I took time to to say that. I don't even think that's the main thing Matthew wants us to get from Jeremiah 31. In the whole chapter of Jeremiah 31, verse 15, that verse that we just quoted, is the only sad verse in the whole thing. You know what Jeremiah 31 is all about? Hope. It's all about hope. It's all about the fact that you're in exile, but guess what? I'm going to take you out. I'm going to cry for you. I'm going to bring you out. You, you know, so it's talking about the restoration from exile, the restoration from your sin and your brokenness and your judgment under God. I'm going to take you out. It gets so good that Jeremiah 31 actually has one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31. I'm not going to have that old covenant with you anymore. I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to write my law in your hearts. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will walk in my ways, and I will forgive you of every single one of your sins, and I will bring you back into the land because I love you. Jeremiah 31, that weeping, look, and just look at, look at 31.15, that quote, right? You see that quote of weeping? Just look at the next verse. This is what the Lord says. Even though Rachel's weeping, this is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from what? Weeping. And your eyes from what? Tears. Why? For the reward for your work will come. And your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration. And your children will return to their own territory. You're in exile because of your sin. But there's hope. You're feeling brokenness in your sin and your suffering. But there's hope. There's a future hope. The whole point of the weeping is the fact that God is going to eliminate the weeping. The whole point of tears is that God will wipe away your tears. The whole point of pain is that God will relieve and then reward you for your pain. So Jesus, if this is fulfilled, how is this fulfilled? Now go back to the story in Matthew. Okay, go back to Matthew 2. How is the hope fulfilled in the kids being slaughtered? Anyone? How is the hope being fulfilled in the kids being slaughtered? The hope is being fulfilled in the kids being slaughtered. Why? Because, does anyone have a guess? I mean, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have guessed here. I had to read it myself or think about it more. But um, anyone want to guess? The hope is fulfilled when the kids are slaughtered because of who isn't slaughtered. Who isn't slaughtered? Jesus. That's why this is fulfilling the hope. Because in the midst of the brokenness, And the slaughter, the one that Herod actually wants to kill, doesn't die. He escapes. And that's why this is is fulfilled. Because the weeping is there, but so is the hope. Now, if if there's weeping and Christ was killed, then we all need to weep, right? No more hope. Let's all cry, and we're just all doomed. But if the son gets away, there's hope. It's fulfilled. There's weeping, but that weeping will be wiped away because that son was not killed. He escaped. He escaped. And so in Jesus escaping, Jesus seals our hope. Or another way of saying it is God seals our hope in Christ. Jesus seals our hope for us by his escape. So this is the good news. The good news is God will redeem Israel from exile. God will redeem us from this exile in our sin through Jesus Christ who escaped. Jesus is alive. He wasn't slain. He will accomplish God's purpose. That baby is about to, is about to reverse the curse on the whole universe. That baby who escaped to Egypt is about to reverse the whole curse on the whole universe. He will accomplish his purpose. He will end the exile. He will bring his people back to God's God. He'll bring his people back to God, and he will bring them back to God's place. He will save his people from their sins. That's his name, Jesus. The light of the new day will push back the sinful darkness of the night. He will break his body. He will shed his blood to inaugurate the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, where the weeping is mentioned to inaugurate the new covenant so that people in bellflower on March 4th, 2018 can say this cup is the new covenant in his blood and we are released from exile and we have hope for a future. It's because of what Christ has done because he escaped. It's fulfilled right here. So every time we take the bread and drink the fruit of the vine, we're not only remembering the death and resurrection of Christ and the return from exile. We are participating in the story. We enter the story. You're part of this story. You are redeemed out of Egypt. You have hope if you take the bread and the drink, not because this saves you. This doesn't do that. It's just symbolizing and reminding you of your true connection to Christ. But you're part of the story, and we're going to remember that as we take the communion even this morning. So the prophecy fulfilled is not that there's weeping. The prophecy fulfilled is that the weeping will be wiped away. If you're not a Christian, you might be saying, this is why I'm not a Christian, P.J., Christianity teaches that God is all good and all loving and all kind. It also says that God is all powerful and he can do whatever he wants. So, why is there suffering in this world? I know why. Because he's not good. Just admit it, PJ. Admit it, Christian. He's not good. Two babies two years and older, old, two years and younger, who could have been saved, aren't being saved. Thousands of babies are being aborted every day. You're telling me that God's in control and He's good? Ethnic-centered injustices still exist today. You're saying God is good? Cancer still exists today. My body is decaying day by day. And you're saying God is good and He can just snap His finger and it's all gone? But it's not? And you're telling me to trust in that God? How can God be good and loving and in control at the same time? This doesn't make sense, Christian so I'm not going to be a Christian. Forget that. You can keep your Christianity to yourself. Well, that is a very legitimate question. And that question will be asked not only by non-Christians. Hey, if you're not a Christian, just so you know, Christians ask that question too, right? Not, you're not the only ones who ask, who ask that question. So, so why would we believe in Jesus if we have the same question you have? For you, that's maybe good enough to not believe in Jesus. Why could we have that question and still believe in Jesus? Here's why. If God himself has suffered then our suffering is not meaningless. It's not senseless. There is no such thing as senseless suffering. Ultimately, there is in the moment. It just seems to not make sense. But in Christ, it's not senseless. Why? Well, let me give you two reasons why you shouldn't reject God. First of all, if you will reject God because you're saying, man, God is so big and he's so powerful and he knows so much, so why doesn't he stop it? I don't want to believe in that God. I reject that God. I'm mad at that God. If that God is so big that you can be mad at him for having enough power to stop it, can't he be so big that he has reasons for that suffering that you can't understand? You can't have it both ways. You can't be mad at him for being all big and then say, well, but I have to understand everything. His, his brain is too big as well, right? His knowledge is too big for you. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I'm mad at him for knowing what to do and not doing it, and, and yet uh, and yet say that, he, that he's all powerful because... If you give him enough to be powerful, then you have to give him enough to say that he has all knowledge and you can't understand what he understands. You can't have it both ways. Either he's not big enough, so he's weak, so he's that, or if he's big, then you can't be mad at him. Okay? That's the first thing to say. Secondly, though, we don't know why suffering continues completely. I don't know why a family member of ours, you know, extended family member of ours, recently passed away from cancer. And another family friend in the last month passed away. A family friend recently passed away from cancer, just recently. I don't know why. I don't have the exact reasons why, but I do know this, and we do know this as Christians. We know that God is not indifferent. We know that God is not uncaring. Why? Because the Christian God, unlike other religions and other philosophies, this God not only says, hey, trust me because I have good reasons. This God comes to earth and suffers himself for our sins. That's the difference between Christianity and everything else. What we're saying, what God is saying is, you can't say, I care about your suffering. I even entered it into myself and suffered more than any of you will ever suffer. So even though you don't understand why you're suffering right now, understand this. I care about you because I I decided to enter into the suffering myself. On the cross, Jesus not only suffered for us. He suffers with us. Let me give you a, a word to the sufferers here. If you're suffering right now, you're in some big trials and you have some big questions of difficulty in your life that you don't have answers to these questions, let me give you some encouragement right now. God is telling us that it's okay to weep. Rachel is weeping for her children. God is yearning and weeping. It's okay to weep. It's okay to cry. Tears over tragedy are not only understandable. If it's a true tragedy, they're necessary, right? But they aren't final. Tragedy isn't final. Brokenness isn't final. Death isn't final. Pain isn't final. Not for the Christian. God calls us to grieve, but to grieve with what? With hope. To grieve, not by, he doesn't call us to ignore the pain or try to make light of it and to act like it's not there. He calls us to see the pain and tragedy and the the hole in our soul in light of the hope of Jesus Christ and the victory over death and the ending of the exile that he accomplished to give us the new earth. We have hope in the future, right? Don't we have a bright future? Brother and sister, especially those who are suffering, your best days are not behind you. Your best days are in front of you. I say that that to every member here, especially the older members, the senior saints here. Your best day, if you're a Christian, your best days are not behind you. Your most glorious, fruitful, joyful exciting days are in front of you. We have hope. There's hope. So let us grieve with hope. Or let us get so caught up in the hope that some of us stop grieving altogether. Either way, that's okay, it's biblical. Whatever your pain or your heartache that you are called to endure, just know that you have a Savior who sealed your hope. And if you're not suffering, get ready to suffer. Because if God doesn't take you in a sudden accident, you're going to suffer. All right, so brothers and sisters, let's suffer with expectation. Let's suffer with hope because God will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes and lead us to the springs of the water of life to reign with him forever and ever. This momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Your suffering is not only, it's not only meaningful, it has a reward to it. So as you keep trusting Jesus and you keep clinging even by the two fingers left in your grip, to cling to the cross of Christ. Keep holding to that old rugged cross because in that you will be rewarded. Not one bit of pain is ordained or allowed in vain. It's all meaningful. Expect suffering because we live in a fallen world, but also expect suffering because of the type of redeemer we have, Jesus Christ, who suffered. And that's what we learn in our next verse. So God seals our hope. Jesus is redeemed for us. Jesus seals our hope in his escape. And thirdly and lastly, verses 19 and 23. I'll tell you this now, even though you're not going to see it when I read the text. Christ was rejected for you. Christ was rejected for you. He was redeemed for you. He sealed your hope for you. And then he was rejected for you. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, After Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. And we know that story. So from Egypt to the south, Archelaus is too violent. I'm going to the north. He goes to Nazareth, or he goes there. And then verse 23, he goes to the region of Galilee. Verse 23, Here's where we're going to focus the rest of our time. Then he went and settled in a town called what? Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if your Bible's like my Bible, your Bible highlights quoting from the old quotes from the Old Testament, right? It's either italicized or it's bold and it's indented, right? You see that there in your Bible? Like it's bold or it's indented? Here, it should not be bold or indented. He shall be called a Nazarene. Do you know why it's not bold? Or indented? Because he shall be called a Nazarene is nowhere in the Bible. You can't find that phrase anywhere in the Old Testament. And Matthew says, you know why he went to Nazareth? Because it's fulfilling what the prophet said, that he will be called a Nazarene. Well, read the prophets. There is not one, you won't find that line anywhere in the prophets. So what is Matthew talking about? Now, do we believe there's errors in the Bible? Yes or no? Come on, be strong that. Do you feel there's errors? Do you know do you think there's errors in the Bible? Yes or no? No, no okay. Not, not if you're a member of this church, okay? Not in our confession. We believe the Bible's without error. You might be struggling, talk to me after. I have a book recommendation for you. Small book, okay? We don't believe there's errors in the Bible. But Matthew is saying that the prophets are fulfilled here, and there's no prophet who said this. So what is going on here? What is he thinking? Now there's three options to this. The third option is what I think is the right option, but I'll give you the first two. Option number one, oh, he's a Nazarite. Can you name any famous Nazarite in the Bible, Old Testament? Famous Samson, right? Or in the New Testament, John the Baptist is like, sort of like, right? So, kind of like with the Nazarite. So, so oh, Jesus is a Nazarite, but that doesn't really work. I mean, we don't know him to have taken the Nazarite vow. He wasn't. So that's not right. Well, the second option is the word Nazar, Nazar, nazarene in hebrew you only have consonants no vowels so nzr in english nsr would be the hebrew well nsr is also the same letters for branch so it's like oh jesus is the branch fulfilling the branch prophecy of um, of the old testament where it says that um you know, like Isaiah 11.1, 1, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So maybe it's the branch prophecies that are, that are being fulfilled. Maybe, that might be it, but I don't think that's the one. Here's the third option, and I think it's the most plausible, though I can't be sure. Nazareth was a place where nobodies lived. And the prophets regularly pick up on the theme that the Messiah will be a nobody who's rejected and disrespected, and scorned, and made fun of, and disregarded by people. That's all over the prophets. The Messiah is going to be a nobody. Okay? And, and so uh, Nazareth was the place where nobodies, I mean, you know, uh, so it, it, it's a nobody. And, and so R.T. Um, France, a New Testament scholar, writes, he, he writes this, The connotations of the derogatory term Nazarene, so it's a derogatory term, nobody, the derogatory term Nazarene is as applied in the first century to the messianic pretender Jesus, listen to this, it captured just what some of the prophets had predicted, a Messiah who came from the wrong place, who did not conform to the expectations of the Jewish tradition, and who was, as a result would not be accepted by his people. He didn't go to seminary, right? I mean, when he became a rabbi, he didn't go through the seminary of their day. He, didn't, he was from a town that nobody knew. He was a rabbi through some other means. He, um, he, he just did not fit in the box of anyone who was looking for a Messiah in the first century. He was a nobody from nowhere coming up to claim to be the Messiah. He was a Nazarene. Jesus, in other words, Jesus was misunderstood and rejected. That's why my point is Jesus was rejected for you. He was rejected for you. That's what the prophets say over and over and over again. Psalm 22, 6 through 8 says this. Listen to this. Just look at the pattern from the Old Testament. Psalm 22, 6 through 8. David writes, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. The Lord delivers him. Since he takes pleasure in him. That's actually quoted at the cross, by the way. But David was talking about that. They scorned David Uh, Psalm 69, verse 8, David writes again, I have become a stranger to my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons. Isaiah 11, 1, the shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse is David's father. Now, when you see a stump, what's the main feature that's going to come out of the stump? The trunk, right? You're like, oh, look at this big tree. It's wonderful. It's magnificent. No, out of the stump, there's a little shoot that's coming off the side. Those are the things you cut, right? When you're, when you're pruning, right? And you're just kind of... I'm, I'm totally not a gardener, so I have no idea if I'm using the right words here. But when you're cleaning up around the tree and you're cutting all the little shoots, but what is Isaiah saying? The shoot is going to become the branch. Not even the main trunk. The thing that you would toss away and cut, that becomes the branch that's going to save the world. So you have this idea of the nobody. Isaiah 49, verse 7, this is what the Lord, the Redeemer of, the, of Israel, the Holy One says to the one who's despised. The one who's despised, to one abhorred by people, to a servant of the rulers, kings will see and stand up and princes will bow down, even though they despised you. So Jesus was part of a long line. Just read your Bible. The people of God are always the nobodies, the unimpressive, the scorned, the mocked. That's who the people of God have always been from the beginning, from Abel, right? Abel being killed by his brother, the, the seed of, this, of the woman will always be mocked and scorned by the seed of the serpent. Abraham was a nobody who got this great promise. He was an idolater who was, worship, yeah, he was worshiping idols in some foreign land, and God just picked that nobody and gave him the promise. And now we're all sons of Abraham. Israel was a small people. He didn't choose them because they were the greatest people, it says in Deuteronomy. Moses was a murderer in exile, and he was a fugitive who couldn't speak well. David was the youngest and least kingly of all his brothers and he's the one who's anointed as king. Hezekiah's forces had no chance against the Assyrian army and an angel lord slaughters them as the army is mocking their weak and pathetic military. Jeremiah was despised and ignored over and over again even though his prophecies kept coming true and even true Christians today. What does Paul say? He says, we are slandered When we are slandered, we respond graciously. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. That's what Christians are to the world. That's what Christians are to some other Christians, sadly. But that's the pattern of the people of God in the world. To be despised, to be mocked, to be slandered, to be nobodies. And Jesus was the ultimate nobody. As Christians, we need to embrace our call to suffer as nobodies. As a church family, we need to remind each other every You know why we get together every Sunday? To tell each other, you're not crazy. That's what we do. We get together and we sing, it is well with my soul. You're not crazy. You're going through crazy things in your life. You're not crazy. There's hope. Jesus died and he's coming again. You're going through stuff with your family. You're going through health problems and you're still holding on to this Messiah from 33 AD. You're not crazy. We're nobodies in this world but we get together with a bunch of other nobodies once a week to remind each other that we're okay and that we're on the right track. That's what we're doing because we follow the nobody as a bunch of nobodies in this world. And so we remind each other, but Jesus is not, even though he's looked at as a nobody, isn't he the ultimate somebody? Isn't he the one? Isaiah 53? We know Isaiah 53. It says, "He grew up like, him, like God. he grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, or no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. That's why we're saying it. A man of sorrows who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself did what? He bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. We in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, afflicted. God, God isn't for this Messiah, this so-called Messiah. So he was rejected on the cross, hanging there in darkness from 12 p.m. to about 3 p.m. Noon to, to about 3 p.m. on the cross, And why? Isaiah 53 continues, he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why? God rejected Jesus so he doesn't have to reject you, sinner that you are. This is the gospel, that Christ dies for sinners like us so that sinners like us can be received and not rejected by God because Jesus was not only rejected by people on the cross. Jesus was rejected by God. He was cursed, and and God poured out his judgment on Jesus so that all of us here can take of this cup and this bread and remember that judgment's not coming for us because Christ bore it for us on the cross. So he is the Nazarene. And he's the Nazarene for us. He's the nobody so that we can become somebody through his death and resurrection. So if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to trust in this Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead. Turn from your sins and trust in him. So connect with our Lord as you reflect on his work. God rejected Christ for you. So to close, the main call for our church this morning is to recognize the glories of Jesus. He is the true people of God. He is the son of God. He is the true Israel who is redeemed for you. He was the one who ended the exile and brought us hope by escaping Herod's sword and and execution. And he is the rejected redeemer who became a nobody for us so that we can become somebody for him. Connect with God by reflecting on Jesus in these ways that we might worship him and enjoy him and then spread his goodness to others. Let's pray. Father, take this word. Hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Help us to see and be amazed at the beauty and majesty and work of Jesus for us and now in us and through us until he comes again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.